This episode is brought to you by Too Faced Cosmetics and Better Than Sex Mascara. The name literally says it all. This mascara is that good. There is a formula for anyone and everyone available in original, waterproof, and chocolate that thickens, lengthens, and curls to give you all the drama and volume. Or try the new Naturally Better Than Sex. It has a 98% naturally derived formula. Shop Too Faced Better Than Sex Mascara at Sephora today. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. American politics really moved prime time last night. You couldn't avoid it. They were talking about the January 6th situation. Let's find out what was going on. Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Washington correspondent, joins us now. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. This was very different from what we saw last night. Like we were talking a lot of primetime coverage. What was going on? So look, primetime coverage served two reasons. Number one, uh, it gets a more captive audience, uh, and also it allows for more information to be put out to the public at a more opportune time. Uh, and ultimately, what we heard, what we saw uh, from this committee that has been seated for the last year, gathering you know infinite amounts, uh, amounts of information, uh, was an attempt to put Donald Trump at the center of the plot uh, to uh, for, for, for this riot taking place uh, on January 6th, and ultimately ultimately, uh, for the lie of election fraud uh, being the driver of the violence that we saw. Okay, and so what kind of testimony did we hear? So there was testimony that we heard from two people, one of them being an officer uh, who was involved uh, in trying to push back on the rioters. The second was from a documentarian who was with uh, members of far-right groups, including the Proud Boys uh, and Oath Keepers, uh, really trying to highlight them as being potential instigators here, and that there may have been conversations or direct links between these groups and the White House, potentially the Oval Office. Beyond the two witnesses, what we heard from was the chair of the committee and the ranking member of the committee, and I think that one was far more important and far more hard-hitting, and that's because Liz Cheney is a Republican. She was speaking as a Republican to Republicans around the country, whether at home or whether members of Congress, in that Republicans appeared to be, in the eyes of the committee, complicit to what was going on in the days leading up to and the hours during the attack. And let's talk about the coverage here too, Reggie, because it was on a lot of channels, but not on every channel, was it? It was not on every channel. It was on most. Uh, it was impossible to to watch anything else last night. It wasn't on Fox News. And this was, uh, a, there's a driving reason for that. And it's that Fox News uh, has been accused of trying to cover up or at least make uh, appear to be a, a lesser story than it actually is. It was interesting because both hosts on Fox News last night, Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity, downplayed what was being discussed at this hearing. But at the same time, they showed no commercials during either of their hour-long programs, uh, therefore not allowing for the viewer to be able to turn away and potentially go to that hearing. This was an effort by Fox News to, again, kind of change the message and ensure that they were keeping either the base or at least their viewers away from what this committee and what Republicans on this committee were trying to show was the reality. Okay, and will this happen in the future? Will we be seeing more of this kind of testimony in prime time? 
So far, not uh, on the primetime schedule. It moves back to a more typical and characteristic schedule of how hearings take place. Mondays will take place at 11 o'clock in the morning. Several more during the next week will take place sometime in mid-afternoon. I think this was really to try and drive that stake through the American uh, kind of interest to show that there is something that needs to be paid attention to because oftentimes fewer and fewer people watch what's going on during the middle of the day. They just get the news snippets towards the end of the day. So this was that opportunity to lay the groundwork, lay the foundation and say, look, there is a story here. We've seen it play out in real and raw time. Uh, this is something that needs to be paid attention to. This is going to go on for a couple of weeks before a final report comes out in September. Okay. And what has the work of the committee been like up until now? Like, is this a bipartisan committee? It is a bipartisan committee in that there are two Republicans on it, Adam Kinzinger of Illinois and Liz Cheney of Wyoming, who is the second in charge of this chair. It would have been a more bipartisan commission. Think of the style that took place after 9-11 to investigate right. what took place back then. Uh, what we see here is kind of um, a, a scrambled, put-together committee because Republicans in the House pulled back, said they didn't want to have anything to do with this. They said it was simply far too partisan. But the fact that two Republicans, outspoken Republicans against Donald Trump, uh, are on here and trying to make this point going forward. This is important. Liz Cheney made a comment last night, Simi, that said, at one point, Republicans, Donald Trump is going to be gone, but your dishonor will last forever. That is a remarkable statement to come from a Republican on a bipartisan committee to her own party. Oh, boy. Okay, no wonder this is in prime time then. Will it, there be more of that, though, Reggie? Will there be more of it at different times of day? Yeah, we're going to see this take place at different times during the day. Again, it's unclear whether this may go back into the primetime spotlight. Potentially towards the end, it is possible here. Uh, but considering that they said that there is going to be seven, possibly eight hearings over the next couple of weeks, there's a lot of information to get out. There's going to be a lot of time needed. Not all networks have the ability to go at eight o'clock at night and give up that kind of prime viewing time. But given the fact that this is going to go for the next couple of months before uh, the, the ultimate report is handed down, there's a lot of information that this committee wants to get out there. This could potentially lead to charges. This is going to end up in the hands, possibly, of the Department of Justice. Interesting. And what I also find interesting about this, too, is that there is an old American tradition of this kind of testimony happening where everybody can see it. And when I was in high school, it was all about the Iran-Contra affair. And I'm sure a lot of people have memories of the Watergate hearings, too. Yeah, absolutely. And this kind of hearing can make a difference. Now, we talked to some experts yesterday who said that, you know, this this committee was trying to go after people and sway opinions. If you weren't watching it, there's probably a reason that people weren't watching it, and it might be difficult to get their attention. But given the information that was told last night, a lot of it knew. The firsthand testimony from people like Bill Barr and Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner and members of the Trump campaign who were actively saying, we told the president he lost. We told the president there was no way he could stay in power. It fuels the this kind of driving push that Donald Trump was at the center of the lie that there was election fraud. And that is why they are laying this groundwork to say the violence that took place is because of a lie that was told by the president that people were telling him not to say because it simply was going nowhere. This is big information. And the Democrats and this committee are really trying to drive that home to Americans. All right, more to come. Reggie, thank you. Thank you. So Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. I don't know if you were able to watch any of that last night, but I tell you what, what I found the most fascinating out of everything uh, was the footage. There were there was at least 12 minutes of unaired footage that had not been seen before that they were showing last night 
of what unfolded on January the 6th and just the power of the crowd, the the violence in some situations, I think was really quite jarring to see. And I think for a lot of people, you've probably forgotten too what it was like. I remember watching it unfold live that day, but even watching it live, you don't see everything that is going on. There were some really, really striking videos on that front last night. This is Mornings with Simi. About an hour ago, uh, an hour ago, we received the new numbers for Canada's employment situation and across the country looks pretty good. Actually, you've got a 5.1% unemployment rate. But what about BC? Well, for BC in the month of May, things actually improved. They improved to about 4.5%. That was from the 5.4% in the month of April. So that's a big change. Where are those gains coming from? What is going on with BC's employment picture? Joining us now to talk more about that is Bruce Ralston, the Minister of Energy, Mines and Petroleum Resources. Good morning. Good morning. Where did we get this improvement from in our jobs numbers? Uh, well, there's uh, construction is up uh, over thirteen thousand. Uh, healthcare is up uh, about eighty six hundred. Um, uh, recreation and culture, they call it, uh, seventy four hundred. So uh, down a bit in manufacturing uh, and transportation. So, uh, but overall, uh, the second lowest unemployment rate in among the provinces, four point five percent, which is, uh, I think, the economists would say that's pretty close to full employment. Right. It had been a rocky couple of months, though, for BC, hadn't it? Because it was seemed to be shifting a little bit. Are things smoothing out, do you think, now? Uh, well, I, I guess that's uh, that would be the judgment of your of your listeners. My sense is that we're doing uh, pretty well. A lot of the problems are, are the problems of uh, prosperity, as, you, as you'll recall. I mean, we had 100,000 people come to British Columbia last year, uh, 70,000 international, 30,000 from other provinces. And, and that's a huge, a huge number. That's the highest in, in many decades. So, so people want to be in British Columbia, and, uh, and they're coming here. Okay, so where can we still improve, though? Uh, well, uh, I think what, uh, what the challenges are, uh, and I think these are chronicled in, in many of the business stories, is most sectors are are short people. They're looking for people. It's uh, the despite the low unemployment rate, many service industries, uh, tourism, which is now I think totally um, is the, the, the summer rush is on. Right. Uh, lots lots of places are looking for people. It's a it's a good time to be uh, uh, a potential uh, job applicant, uh, particularly if you have. Have the right skills. Okay, so where do we still need to do better, though? Are there areas where you look at that and you think, okay, we clearly need to keep an eye on this? Um, well, I, I would say um, that um, the, the the shortage in, in uh, particularly in in, uh, in some in some skilled trades, some skilled occupations, is uh, is is intense. Um, healthcare, uh, we're hiring and. Can see the number there it's uh, 8600 so it's up but uh, there are uh, as uh, i think has been discussed uh, publicly um room for more uh, more people to come and uh, take up jobs all right we'll see what happens thank you so much for that update today okay great thank you very much appreciate that that's bruce ralston minister of energy mines and petroleum resources talking about bc's unemployment rate 
an improvement. That number just came out this morning. So nationwide, the rate is 5.1%, which is also an overall improvement. But BC, though, month over month had a significant change. A month ago, it was 5.4%. And we checked in with Minister uh, Ravi Kailan about that. And he was saying that, yeah, it had been a little bit bumpy. And, and you know, there were still some areas that needed a bit of a boost. And, you know, they thought things would get better. Well, this month, a big difference from that 5.4%. It is now 4.5% in the month of May. And it was a number of full-time jobs that were added, some part-time jobs that were added. Uh, so BC having a good month with the employment picture. But you know what? It has been a bit of a roller coaster ride. So we'll see what happens next month. And you still have an awful lot of employers out there who are looking for people, looking for people in all sorts of different you know, occupations out there. Now, if you're a business owner, would like to talk to me about that. What's it like trying to fill a job these days? What's it like to try to get somebody to pay attention to your job opening? This is Mornings with Simi. Lots of you out there want to talk about the state of our healthcare system. Many of you have a story that you want politicians to hear. Well, your opportunity may be coming. It's the BC Green Party hitting the road to hear about the problems in our healthcare system from people all over BC. Joining us now to talk about that is Sonia Firstnow, leader of the BC Green Party. Thank you for being here. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks so much to me. And where are you going for this tour? Well, between Adam and I, uh, the, the 100% of the BC Green Caucus, uh, we've got uh, trips planned, of course, to the Lower Mainland, to the Sea to Sky region, Kootenays, Okanagan. We're going to be up in the northwest, uh, up on Vancouver Island, Sunshine Coast, uh, and then back to Kootenays, Sea to Sky, and Lower Mainland. So we're between the two of us, trying to uh, get out as often as we can and get to as many places as we can. Okay, and what do you think you're going to hear from people? Well, sadly, I think we're going to hear a lot of the same stories, which is people not having access to a family physician. And uh, over and over again, we hear from, particularly from experts and, and doctors themselves, just how critical the role of a family physician is in a person's long-term health. So that relationship having you, that you have with a doctor, the long-term, the ability for somebody to know you over time really leads to better health outcomes. So that's, of course, uh, a growing problem in BC. But more and more, we're also hearing about the acute effects of this healthcare crisis. And that includes, and and, you know, this is, uh, I I lost two parents uh, to cancer, and so this really uh, resonates when I hear that people are getting uh, cancer tests, mammogram or or cancer work done, and they can't get access to those tests and move forward with the treatment they need because they don't have a family physician. And when we have problems like that, you know that's really such a, a critical and acute problem that we need to see this government make decisions quickly and say, we're going to solve that problem right now. We're going to find a mechanism that those tests get back to that patient and that patient can move forward with the treatment they need. Um, and so it's, it's, you know, I think what we're hearing more and more are 
ways in which this crisis is affecting people's lives so deeply. Right. And we are hearing those stories definitely from people. But is that message getting through to the government? Like, what is your sense of these Mm -hmm. issues being acted upon? This is one of the challenges that we have, and and this is one of the the points that we're we're raising, which is we have a response often from the health minister when he's faced with questions about this situation where he'll rattle off a bunch of numbers about, you know, well, 30,000 healthcare workers, Um, but that doesn't take into account how many have left. That doesn't take into account that that doesn't just mean doctors and nurses. That's that's everything from people working in, in hospitals, uh, in the cooking and cleaning staff, to, to, of course, doctors and nurses. But we don't need to hear about more numbers, as I have pointed out, more inputs that this government has made. We need to hear that it is focusing on the outcomes for people. And when we see that those outcomes are deteriorating over and over again, then whatever approach they're taking right now isn't working and they need to take a different approach. Okay, so what would you tell them to do from what you're hearing, what needs to be done? What do you think that is? Yeah, well, what I just said about um, cancer patients getting their their test results, I have said that directly to the health minister. That's number one. Like, Like, find a solution to that immediately. But on the primary care crisis, Meet doctors where they're at. If a doctor is providing primary care, if a doctor is, is a family physician right now and struggling because of the growing overhead costs, because of the growing administrative burden, meet those doctors where they're at so that they don't as well close down their practices and leave thousands more patients stranded. Because we hear about we're building this primary care network, and I, I think primary care teams are, are an excellent uh, vision for our healthcare system. But in the meantime, we cannot afford to lose more doctors to burnout and, uh, and their inability to continue working in a system that doesn't meet their needs. Um, we've called for incorporating mental health care psychologists into primary care making psychologists and mental health care covered under MSP so that people have access to mental health care when they need it. We've been working with the BC Psychological Association for over two years and proposed this uh, pilot in June 2020 to the government. And of course, we've talked about the um, drug poisoning crisis and the need for us to recognize as has we've heard over and over at the health committee thus far, this is a health issue. We have to treat it as such. We need an access to a regulated safe supply because six people dying every day is unacceptable. These all sound like really big issues, obviously, that need to be tackled. These are huge issues for British Columbians. Is it possible, do you think, to do this in the next you know, couple of years? I think we have to decide that it's necessary. And, and, and I'll compare this to, you know, when, when, the, when the atmospheric river hit in November and parts of the Coquihalla were washed away and roads were uh, closed out, rained out, um, we saw a mobilization and we saw this government, you know, put the resources and ensure that that the work was done to get those highways reopened in a very short order of time. You need the political will from a government 
to say, this is what we're going to achieve. This is what we're going to accomplish. And when I look at this government right now, what I'm not seeing is that sense of urgency and that political will that is necessary to actually take on this problem and really start to address it. When we hear them sort of continuously repeating the same talking points, continuously pointing to, well, this is what we've done and this is what we're doing, and not acknowledging that it's not working, then I'm worried that we're not going to see the kind of urgent action that we need to see from them. It's not insurmountable to actually start with where doctors are at right now who are delivering primary care, who are family physicians, and say, on the whole, look, we've heard your needs. Number one, we're immediately making adjustments to the MSP uh, program so that when you have a 30-minute visit with a complex patient discussing cancer treatment, we recognize that's different than a 10-minute visit to have some somebody's ears cleaned out. And right now, we don't have the mechanisms to really distinguish between uh, the different types of visits that doctors do in the day-to-day course of their life. The other thing they can say to doctors right now that are, are delivering primary family physician care is we recognize your administrative and your overhead burden, and we're, we're here to help. We're going to address this. If this government can make the choice to put a billion dollars to a museum, they need to also be able to make the choice to invest in saving our healthcare system. Okay. And when does your uh, tour kick off? Where can people participate? Uh, right. Let me just get those dates up here, Simi. I don't have them memorized <laughs> just yet. <laughs> well, when is the kickoff? Like, when are you heading out on the road? Uh, the 26th is our, sorry, the 16th is the first day that I'm going to be back here on the Lower Mainland. Uh, and, uh, and then, uh, when we're and then the 17th and 18th, I'll be in Sea to Sky. So, okay, uh, really excited to be back here next week and uh, kicking off this tour. All right, well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. That's Sonia Fresnel, leader of the BC Green Party. You know, interesting there what she was saying about the ability to move faster. That's something I've heard from business people too, is that now that they have seen, now that we know government can move on a dime, used to be that, oh no, government's too big. We can't always do things that quickly. Actually, you can. We've seen it during the pandemic. We saw it during the unprecedented flood situation last fall. So now that that precedent has been set, we can see that you can do things faster. There is an expectation that when we have a crisis, like what we're facing with our doctor shortage for so many people, that that it can be done. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's find out how the Vancouver Whitecaps are feeling. They should be feeling pretty good, but we'll find out what's going on. Vanny Sartini joins us now, head coach of the Vancouver Whitecaps. Morning, coach. Morning, Simi. How are you? I am good, thank you. I was saying you should be feeling pretty good, right? That was a great game last weekend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It uh, was an exciting game. Uh, we we managed to win. It was against a very tough opponent, so yeah, we're, we're feeling pretty good. And then after that, we had... La- like uh, a little break because this weekend we we're not gonna play, so it was perfect. <laughs> okay, so you earned that. It was great, two-one, Real Salt Lake. But you're so close at this point, coach. What are you one? You're one point outside of the playoff places. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we are uh, one point behind uh, 
behind the line. So yeah, we are in, I'd say, in the middle of the battle. So I think that uh, uh, it's going to be exciting from now from now on, trying to to, to be above the line and uh, again uh, catch the playoff again this season. Yeah, you, you really seem to, the team seems to have really turned a corner here. So this week you've got Seattle coming up. Is that right? Yeah, we will play Tuesday actually in Seattle. And uh, it's going to be, of course, a hard game. Seattle is a, is a, is a very good team. But uh, with the, I would say, condition and with the uh, trust and belief that we have at this moment, we, we really can go everywhere and try to win in uh, in every city, to be honest. That's so interesting the way you say that. So has that built, do you think, over the, has the confidence level gone up and up and up after the last four or five games? Yeah, 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 for sure. You know, of course, results help and uh, the performance uh, have been good. And uh, the, the good thing also is that, that because we had to play a lot of games back to back to back, every player basically participated in, in, in some games. So, uh, you know, it's it's not just that 11, 12 or 13 players uh, uh, contributed to that, but all, all the players in the roster. So there's, a, uh, I would say, a clear sense of uh, trust uh, between the players because they know that uh, whoever's going to play is be is going to be able to perform. Right. And you've had a couple of players that have come back uh, from injury in the last game. You also have a new midfielder arriving, what, this weekend? Yes, he's uh, actually arriving tomorrow. Uh, it's uh, one of our big signings. It's uh, Andres Kubas that uh, um, he finally got his uh, his work visa and uh, now he was with the national team of Paraguay. So he will arrive uh, uh, Saturday morning and uh, finally will be will be with us from Sunday. So it's, a, it's a, I would say, great addiction and. Uh, uh, um, we'll, we'll we'll do everything to to make him feel at home from day one. Oh well, that's good because you know what the pressure is on now. These games are so entertaining to watch. I am looking forward to Tuesday, coach. Yeah, fantastic. me too. Me too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hopefully, sure. hopefully, a lot of people from Vancouver will decide to make the the trip to Seattle and support us there. So oh, see it. now, now you're wishing. <laughs> I I wish I had done that. I wish I'd thought about that ahead of time. Uh, listen, coach, thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> no problem, see. <laughs> This is Mornings with Simi. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the deal. It go down. It go down in the deal. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. 
Well, we have seen a lot of rain over the last few days, and the province is expecting more of that. And as that happens, as we brace for even more, there is growing concern about some localized flooding, as we've been hearing about in the news. We know the snowpack remains high, the melt has been slow, and now we've got these multiple days ahead of us where heavy rain and mild air could cause a much more sudden melt of those snowpacks. So how much of concern is this out there? Our Mel Castellan joins us now, a warning preparedness meteorologist for Environment and Climate Change Canada. Hello, Armel. Hi, thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for being here to talk about this because it sounds like there's a lot of concern about this. First off, let's talk about this atmospheric river. Which areas of the province are still showing some concern for this? Well, you know, what's interesting about that event, uh, and it was mostly yesterday, is that the, you know, an atmospheric river, we get 20, 30 of them every given year, and 95% of them are a rainy day like we saw yesterday. What was tricky yesterday is that it's almost mid-June, and you're, you're 10 times less likely to see 25 millimeters in a given day than you are, say, in November or, uh, or December when we get the bigger rainstorms. Uh, so yesterday, hitting 25 millimeters, almost 30 in some locations, was certainly out of the ordinary. Uh, and, you know, they only happen 0.1 days of Junes on record. Um, and now this rain, is it is moving north and it's making its way through the province. And that is where the, uh, the freshet or the spring melt concern is highest, uh, particularly in the Caribou, uh, the Amanika, and, and very much so in the Liard Basin, so way up in the northeast. Uh, so, yeah, we're having conversations daily with the River Forecast Centre to make sure uh, their river models are ingesting our weather models and that uh, we're all on the same page. Okay, so is there a concern about rivers rising? Like, what's going to happen to the snowpack over the next little while? Well, that's exactly it. So the snowpack has been delayed uh, in the sense that it's been cooler and and wetter than normal. And therefore, at the upper elevations, we've continued to add snow right across uh, the peaks of the province and into the Yukon for, you know, well beyond the normal time frame. Usually by the 1st of April, we're kind of cresting, we're peaking with our snow. In this case, we went into May and now right into early June with some additional snow in some locations. So it's just meant that now we're at this point where we're way beyond the normal melt. And of course, it's warmer. It's not necessarily the heat dome of last year, almost this time, but it is definitely warming up. And now the snow is what we call ripe and it's ready to melt. And so now we're basically raining on melting snow and that adds another uh, amount of snow for those rivers to, to take on. So yes, the rivers are, uh, you know, they're, they're rising and they could rise more in different locations. And that's why it's so critical to listen to the alerts put out by the River Forecast Center to make sure you're aware which communities are at greatest risk. So what still has to happen here, Armel, in terms of getting the rivers and the snowpack or the snowpack in particular back to more, you know, normal levels for this time of year, what has to happen? Well, the best case scenario would be for very gradual melting. So no big heat events. And luckily we are not forecasting that. In fact, we're going to be two, even three degrees cooler than average seasonal temperatures for the next week or two. Um, and we also need no big rain events that have you know thunderstorm activities that we're really 
give a lot of rain over one small region because this this can affect you know the greater uh, bigger river basins like the Fraser, the Skeena, the Stikin, but it also is affecting the smaller rivers uh, in a smaller area. And and the thunderstorm activity right now is the big issue. Not to not to mention the fact that we have burn scars from these recent wildfire seasons that have been so strong. And those locations, uh, like the Deadman River um, in the Okanagan, lots of locations like that, you know, they take on a thunderstorm out of the blue and you can get extra runoff because of those burn scars. So there's a fragile um, ecology out there. And right now we're kind of at nearing peak melt uh, for, for the freshet or the spring melt. So how, how much longer do you think are we in this kind of danger zone? It looks like, you know, the next two to three weeks are really the, the most critical ones. And then eventually we'll reach that point when the mountains, you know, melt out on the, in the, the mid elevations. And eventually all that's left is the upper elevations. And as we get into that zone, then, of course, we're going to start to run out, quote unquote, of snow to melt. And therefore, you know, you can get a, a heat event like in early or mid July, which is more typical. And then, you know, there's just not enough snow to melt anymore. And yes, the rivers will likely stay high, uh, higher than normal, Mm -hmm. uh, right through until July. Um, But probably there's a date there in early July when we we're no longer susceptible to a huge, huge surge anymore. We still haven't seen or had um, a warming up, like we haven't kind of turned that corner yet to get us into late spring, early summer. Uh, is that unusual for this time of year? It feels like it's unusual. It's a bit unusual. Yeah. I mean, only getting into the 12, 13 degrees most of the day yesterday in Vancouver. I know the, the officially we hit 14.8, but that was early, early in the day. So we actually descended, the temperature descended all the way through the day. Um, you know, yes, it's unusual. Uh, we've mostly been accustomed to warmer and drier than normal springs and early summers in the last few years. So it's, it's a shock because we know where we, we remember those years very clearly. Uh, but then there are, there have definitely been some other seasons in the past, uh, you know, looking back in the last few decades that have been similar to this. Uh, this one just ends up being, yeah, a little bit on that spectrum of colder uh, and and wetter also. So June has continued that way. In some ways, the, the big benefit here is that the interior is getting its fair share of rain and that could, um, you know, spell a, an easier start to the wildfire season. Uh, and hopefully that's the case because it has been a difficult one for, you know, yeah. four or five of the last seven years. No kidding. Okay, so that's the one good thing that we hope will come out of this. What is the overall forecast, Armel? When you look ahead for the next few months, what what do you see is shaping up, particularly here on the South Coast? Well, it's a little bit dominated by an indirect effect from La Nina. So La Nina has that, those colder than normal sea surface temperatures in the equatorial Pacific. And we've had two winters now so far this way, and it looks like we're continuing into probably next fall and winter. But the indirect piece there is that our localized waters right offshore of the south coast of BC are also colder than normal as a result of all that dynamic happening uh, in the Pacific. And that is the driver for these continued, um, you know, open door policy to the Pacific. So yes, the storms are not as strong as the November and December storms, 
but they are still coming in and dousing us. And we have this onshore flow here for the next couple of days uh, where we will likely see a shower here and there again. And, and that's going to be the telltale kind of driver going into July. And then by the time we get to mid-July, all things are kind of foggy. We can't really see, are we going to be at near normal or are we going to start to hedge our bets towards a little bit above normal temperatures? I mean, that would be the time of year where we do have our peak temperatures. So up until that point, until mid-July, I'd say we're luckily, we're in a way lucky for wildfire, but certainly tre- trending behind those temperatures that we typically see. All right. Well, thank you for explaining it all to us. We appreciate that. My pleasure. I understand that much better now. That's our Mel Castellan, who's a warning preparedness meteorologist for environment and climate change. This is Mornings with Simi. Our farming series, Keep It Local. And we're talking to a local farm in Ladner, and this one that has been around for a long time, at least 25 years or so, more than that, actually, also coming up on 30. And it's a place that I have been to quite a few times, actually. Uh, joining us now is Sharon Ellis from Westham Island Herb Farm. She's coming up in just a moment. I hope that you have been taking the time to actually check some of these places out, too. They've got great websites. They've got great access for people. You can go and visit. And in fact, that's how I came to know this place in particular. Uh, Sharon Ellis joins us now. Good morning, Sharon. Hello. How, how are, are you this morning? I am good, thank you. Let me ask you, how's strawberry season coming along? Uh, sorry, I'm, I missed that. How is strawberry season coming along? Oh, um, they're, they're looking not too bad. They're going to be a little later than normal, but um, they they look pretty good. See if we're about the second week in uh, June. Okay. I was a little concerned about that, though, because it's been cooler this spring, right? Has that affected the crop at all? Right now, only in lateness. That uh, Now the, 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 the fruit looks good on them, so it's just going to be a little later, and hopefully sunshine, we get that, <laughs> because then all this rain, then they will worry about fruit mold, but... I don't want to get into that. You know, Sharon, I can hear the sigh in your voice on this. Is this just <laughs> the what it's like if you are a farmer these days? Like those are these are the things you have to deal with. It is. It's uh it they gave her the hard one this year. Mother Nature, she's really uh she's with everything. The cost, the the weather, I just I've never seen this late. It's it's uh I it's I'm sure every farmer out there is struggling. It's getting their crops in, but it's tough. It is tough. Uh, Can you tell me, for people who don't know, even though I know because I've been there plenty of times, but tell me about Westham Island Herb Farm. Uh, I started, it's on a family farm where um, family came here in the late 1800s and uh, always been just a wholesale farm. And then in 94, I opened it up as a, opportunity for people my my theory is if i can get people onto the farm and they can actually see how it's operating that um they'll understand the importance of farmland better so i i um farm probably about 20 acres of the farm through my pumpkins and just a mix of organic veggies uh and people are allowed to come in see how everything's grown um my season is may through halloween start with plants and then all the different uh, veggies 
and then end my season in the fall with pumpkins. And I know fall is a really big time of year for you, isn't it, at the farm? Yeah, the pumpkins I've been doing the longest and have been been selling. My sister and I started selling pumpkins when we were five and the, the curb in front of my house and uh, there wasn't much traffic then. A far cry from what it is now. Now there's so much traffic on the island, like especially in berry season. Um, they got to put flaggers on the bridge. So it, things have certainly changed. Oh, no kidding, right? Like I remember coming out there. I've always come out there. I used to live just down the road from there yeah. and yeah. never had a problem. And then I came out last summer, as I always do, to get my berries and things. And yeah, it was a traffic jam. Yeah. So what has that been like to deal with that on on the island? Well, I mean, it's, it's, a plus, it's a plus for me because it's business. Uh, but I know and I feel for my neighbors, it's frustrating when you're trying to take a big tractor and equipment across the, the one-lane bridge. And if you're a first-timer coming over the bridge, you're not quite sh- sure how it operates and, and that. So um, the flaggers do an okay job. I mean, they, it's hard for them as well. It's a hard situation, but trying to figure it out to... to get the happy medium in there for the businesses and as well as the farmers and even the customers, because some customers, they say, well, I'm not waiting. It takes me half an hour to go down there. I'm not going to go down there. So, and we certainly don't want to lose customers because of that, but yeah, it is tricky for sure. Now, one of the things I love about your farm too, is you talked about the pumpkins there and you always have like dozens of, of beautifully carved pumpkins too. Who does all the pumpkin carving? Uh, Just my friends and family. What? And sure, there's so yeah. many of them. Yeah, yeah. There's there's not as many as there used to be, but um, that was a, a big thing. And a big thing in, in my, um, the farm is that yeah, I love to farm. I wouldn't do anything else, but I also love to be creative in it. Um, it gives me an out for that. So, to... So, yeah, what do you not- what do you love about this? Obviously, there have been some tough times, especially the last year, as you were saying. What do you love about what you do? Um, I I think just the uh, well, outside is huge. That it get to be outside. I, I love my family's heritage in it. I love the the whole community spirit and uh, the the gratification of like putting that working that ground because working the ground is just almost as good as watching the plant come up through the ground but just to, to go there and cruise around and see that okay that seed popped through or that transplant yeah it's doing well and uh and then get to go harvest it and pull those carrots out of the ground and just i i still get giddy when i look at these <laughs> that is and i'm i'm, I'm not just saying that because it's your show i'm just it's the truth <laughs> no i believe you i get that feeling yeah. for sure do you do you think that as customers like do we have a better understanding of these are people more actively involved do you think in where their food comes from i think so and and i think you're doing an amazing job just wanted to say that because i before i even got on asked to come on your show i said that's somebody who understands it she gets it but you say it in such a good way and i thank you for that well sharon you're gonna make me cry but it's just (laughs) i also love food but you know i've known some of these places like your farm for a really long time and i feel like every year when i go i see more and more people there and that must be really rewarding for you oh 100 percent no and it's uh and you know covid helped that too. I mean, it's it's been increasing before COVID, but COVID really got people thinking about their food more and doing more canning, doing preserving more, and and doing more gardening. Um, it there definitely is a. 
I mean, I think some people will realize, okay, that's not for me. But I think some people it'll stick with, and uh, it, there'll be more more people preserving and understanding. Okay, it's strawberry time. Let's let's, let's freeze some or can some or make some jam now. And uh, that's so that's a good thing. That's exactly what I do. Well, Sharon, I will see you then in a couple of weeks when the strawberries are ready. But thanks so much for joining us this morning. You're very welcome. All right. Good luck. That's Sharon Ellis, the owner and operator of the Westham Island Herb Farm. If you have never been there, and you know what? I'm sure there are some people listening right now going, where's Westham Island? It is in Ladner. Maybe you've heard of the Rifle Bird Sanctuary. If you've never been out that way, take a Sunday drive out there. I mean, you won't be alone because it is getting more and more popular, but it is so beautiful out that way. And you'll see great farms like the Westham Island Herb Farms, like Emma Lee Farms. There are some great farms down there that you can stop and get your berries. I go out there for strawberries. I definitely go out there for pumpkins in the fall. It is beautiful. And I did used to live down the road, so I was very spoiled by that. But now it's a visit for me there. And I can't say enough good things about kind of the work that they are doing to get people connected to their food. So places like that, I love them. If you have a suggestion of a place like that that I should check out or that we should talk about, here on the show, especially for part of our Keep It Local series, please email it to me, simi at cknw.com. What we're trying to do is to not only help you, you know, support these very, very local places, but to help people get more engaged and, and know where your food comes from and also provide some support to these farmers and our agriculture industry that has been so hard hit over the past year, whether it was wildfires, the heat dome or flooding. They could use a little of our help right now, especially as growing season ramps up. So yes, pitch in, check out a local farm near you.